Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 11 or 7. Uh, 11 through 17 is our passage today. When two crowds collide during a funeral. That sounds like the beginning of a joke, doesn't it? When two crowds collide during a funeral. You know, when I was a youth pastor, we used to ask awkward questions of the kids called, Would you rather? And they, they were called, Would you rather? questions. And they were pretty outlandish questions. And they were meant to kind of break the ice and get people to kind of giggle and laugh and a little bit awkward and just get people talking. Uh, one of the few of the good ones that I can remember is, would you rather have no one show up to your wedding or no one show up for your funeral? What would you rather? No one show up for your wedding or no one show up for your funeral? Would you rather cry at your best friend's wedding or laugh uncon- uncontrollably at a funeral? Which one would you rather do? Uh, would you rather have the ability to see 10 minutes into the future or 150 years into the future? Which one would you rather have? And one question I think is thought-provoking is this one. Would you rather have an amazing funeral or live an extra day? Would you rather have an amazing funeral or live an extra day? Interestingly, one man is going to to be able to answer that question as we look at Luke chapter 7, 11 through 17 in our passage this morning. Last week, Jesus was moved by the faith of a Gentile centurion into healing his servant from sure death. Jesus accomplishes this without ever stepping foot or going to the centurion's house or laying his eyes on that servant. He never touched that man. In doing so, he was just able to say with a word, Jesus demonstrated that his ministry extended to Jews and Gentiles alike. It exposes the heart intentions and the motives of its recipients and rewards faith. Jesus' authority is powerful, is sovereign. His ministry is is, is far-reaching. And as the Son of God, Jesus has the authority over sickness, even those that are near death. In today's passage, Luke gives another example of the divinity of Jesus as Jesus encounters a grieving widow who is leading a funeral procession outside, to the, outside of the city. And in this narrative, Jesus is going to demonstrate his power over death itself. Not just sickness near death, but death itself. So with that, Luke chapter 7, 11 through 12. Again, I always want to encourage you to bring your Bibles. We have the first portion up here on the monitor so you can follow along. Luke writes... Soon afterwards, speaking of Jesus, Jesus went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Father, give us wisdom as we consider this passage. We thank you. For the life of this widow and son, name unknown, never again mentioned in scripture, yet captured here for all eternity for us to learn from. Give us wisdom. I pray that you would keep us from distraction. I pray that if there's any that's here, Lord, that they hear the gospel for the first time, that you may open up their hearts 
any who may be watching us through social media, through YouTube, Father, either now or later, Lord, that they would take this moment to concentrate and listen to what your word has. Give us the wisdom, the sermon to know the difference between just my mere opinion, my words, and Lord, let us reflect on the truth that's found in Scripture. We thank you for this time. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, Luke begins this narrative with the phrase, soon afterwards, and indicating it's an indefinite time period between he heals the centurion. Luke is not always writing through a chronological uh, timeline of Jesus' ministry. Sometimes he's taking it thematically through, so he's taking uh, you know, things here, things here, and putting them together. So when it says soon afterwards, we don't know how long a period that was, but it was sometime after the healing the centurion. Jesus encounters this, this woman. Now the setting for today's passage is found in the city of Nain, which is still in existence today with a population of just over about 1,800 people. Nain is about 25 miles away from Capernaum, where, where Jesus kind of was the center of Jesus' ministry there in that region of northern Israel, what we would call Galilee. And so he travels 25 miles, which doesn't seem much, but that's, a, that's almost a full day's journey uh, in those times where they would walk. The question you and I might ask is, though, <coughs> is why would Jesus travel to this small, out-of-the-way village while leading a great crowd that had been following him? Why would they travel a day? Traveling a day's journey is, is difficult. There's, there's no stop and go, right? There's no 7-Elevens on the way. There's, there's no way to get snacks. You can only carry what you can carry for food and for water. We see this many times in Scripture where they're following Jesus and they don't plan, right? And all of a sudden they say, well, we're hungry. Can somebody feed us? And Jesus is like, well, we're in the desert here. What are we going to do here? Well, again, these people are following him a day's journey. Now, you and I think, well, you know, just traveling to L.A., like that's a time away, right? But we're talking a day's journey. We're talking probably a good 8 to 12, 14-hour journey as they're traveling. Well, why are they doing this? Why are they following him all around the countryside to a small village that no one really has anything to do with? It's never once again mentioned in scripture. Well, the answer is very simple. Jesus has a divine appointment waiting him in that city of Nain. It may never be mentioned again. It's, it may not have any significance in any other way, but there was a divine appointment that day for Jesus, and Jesus had to be there. He knew this. Ironically, the city of Nain means pleasant and delightful. However, as you and I read through this narrative, we can easily see that everything is not pleasant and delightful as we are introduced to this poor widow that Jesus encounters on the road that day. Now Luke points out twice the size of the two different crowds. One crowd is led by a popular rabbi, is described as a great crowd, while the one that's led by a grieving widow is described as considerable. It is great. It is considerable. These two crowds are now are going to collide on that faithful day, on that one road, one moving in, one moving out. And on that faithful day, we see a surprising, stunning, stupendous, supernatural event that occurs that's going to change this poor woman's life. And it's going to be captured for all eternity in the word of God, for God's glory, for her good, and for our profit. And we're going to see that reason today. Now, through eyewitness accounts, Luke tells us that Jesus reaches the gates of this city. He encounters a widow leading the funeral procession of her son outside for burial. 
we must not miss Luke's description of this poor woman. She is a widow with only one son who has now died. That's an important part of this piece of this puzzle. She is a widow whose only son has now just recently died that morning. She's a widow with only one son. Sorry, I lost my place there. Now with both of the men in her life, both of the men in her life, her husband and her son gone, she is now left desperate, destitute, and desolate in the community. The life of a woman in her state would have been devastating as she would have no one now to provide for her and care for her. Her economic situation would have put her in dire straits with no opportunities other than remarriage or begging on the kindness of others. That she was a widow makes it seem that she was an older woman in years and, and remarriage was probably not in her, her future, in her picture. She was not only bereaving losing her son, but also her well-being as well. Luke records that Jesus and the crowd come face to face with the widow in the funeral procession as they are coming out of the village. The widow is leading the procession with her son on a briar. A briar is a wooden plank. Just think of a wooden board that served as an open coffin. Burials are outside of a city in those days and villages. So they're, they're moving out to the, to the burial site. Now Luke records that Jesus and his crowd is doing this. And when Daryl Bach writes, a theologian Daryl Bach writes that according to custom, the bereaved family members would rend their clothes, speaking of tearing their clothes, and they would mourn the death. And the process did not begin of mourning and taking care of those things until it was certain that the death occurred. You, you don't want to bury someone who's still alive. The body was anointed to prevent deterioration. The body was buried quickly and was not kept overnight at home. The corpse would be wrapped in burial cloth and put on a burial plank for all to see. So then the mother would be leading the procession out of the village. She would be standing in front of the crowd and their others would be mourning and carrying her son. So you kind of get that, uh, that, that procession in your mind. However, Jesus interrupts this grieving widow and her mourners and he speaks to her. Read with me at verse 13. Because the words of Jesus are kind of strange at this point. And when Jesus saw her, he sees what's going on. He understands what's going on. It says that he had compassion on her. And he said to her these words, Do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the briar. And the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. Look at verse 15. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Now, at first glance, Jesus' command to the woman, to the widow, do not weep, seems very rude and shallow. Maybe even a silly command considering her predicament. Could you imagine interrupting a funeral, going up to the widow or to a, a mother whose son has died and said, oh, don't cry. Don't, don't weep. Don't mourn. At this point, it doesn't seem that even she or the mourners behind her have any idea who Jesus is yet they stop and they listen Jesus here isn't asked or expected to do a miracle here 
It's not like they, like the centurion, they asked him to come to raise their son. It's like not like Mary and Martha with Lazarus saying, Jesus, come, your, your friend is sick. They don't know who Jesus is. They don't, they don't know what he's done at this point. They may not have known anything of Jesus. But Jesus here takes it upon himself to interrupt this funeral procession and insert him into the proceedings. For most people, we would consider that rude, shallow, unkind, but yet he's moved by compassion to do something. Last week, Jesus was moved by the centurion's faith to heal a servant that was near death. This week in Luke's narrative of chapter 7, 11 through 17, we read that Jesus is moved by compassion to raise her son from the dead. Seeing the woman and perceiving her pain, understanding her situation, Jesus now moves into action. And Luke records five actions of Jesus as we read that passage. Number one, he stops the funeral procession and he ignores all custom. Custom is just like you and I today. When you see uh, the police, usually it has a police escort and you see the hearse coming. What is it that you and I do? We turn to the side of the road or we get out of the way, right? So the funeral procession can go on their way. We would think it's rude, those people who would, who would slow down or be in the way or not let that procession continue through. For someone to interrupt a, a funeral, we would think, well, how rude, how, how callous. Do they not know the pain that people are going through? However, Jesus ignores custom and he stops. Not only does the widow stop and look at him and listen to him, but even the people that are carrying the man who's heavy, most likely, they stop and the crowd just stops. He speaks to the widow. He knows her pain. He knows that this is the worst moment of her life. All her fears are now realized without a husband, without a son, no one to care for her, to take care of her. He touches, I don't know if you saw that, but he touches the briar where the dead body is. Now consider what we've learned from the Old Testament. You're not allowed to touch the dead body or anything near a dead body or you would become ceremonially unclean. God, Jesus is unconcerned about that. He speaks now to the young man. Now to you and I, we, when we have a funeral, we come up and people will speak to a dead person and someone who's passed away. We say maybe words of love, kindness, things that we would like to say to them. May say words that doesn't they, don't they look good? We love you, we'll miss you. But Jesus speaks to the dead man as if the dead man is going to do, he's going to give a command. Strange enough, the people are looking around, what, what is he doing? But not only does he call the dead man to get up, he calls the man to do something that he cannot do. The dead do not get up. But then number five, God, uh, Jesus now gives him to his mother because he does. We see that he rises from the dead and then he gives him back to his mother. Not only does he restore her son, but now he restores her livelihood, her ability to continue on. <clears throat> What we see in these few verses here is that Jesus changes the trajectory of this poor woman's life with just seven words. With just seven words, her life and his life is changed. Young man, I say to you, arise. He doesn't pray to the Father. He doesn't do some elaborate uh, um, uh, ritual or tradition. He just says, young man, I say to you, arise. Now this is a command. That Jesus gives. And stunning the crowd, the young man does exactly that. 
He rises up. He does what Jesus commands without hesitation, without any demonstration of faith on his part or on his mother's part. He just gets up and does what Jesus calls him to do. Jesus brings a dead man to life. Now, this should not be surprising to you and I looking back because you and I just sung about how God does that each and every day. You and I were dead men that Jesus raised from the dead. We just sung about that in grace alone. You know, we're head full of rocks, you know, a heart made of stone. God made us alive. Well, that's when he makes him alive. He brings a dead man back to life. Immediately, Luke focuses on the reaction of both of those crowds. The great crowd that followed Jesus and the considerable crowd that followed the woman. The question is, what will the crowd think when they see this miracle unfold before their eyes? Well, look at us at verse 16, for Luke gives us that that response of the two crowds. In verse 16, Luke writes that fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. Surely the eyewitness accounts that supplied this information for Luke's account were shocked, surprised, stunned by what they just witnessed. At least part of the crowd had seen Jesus do some miraculous wonders and works of healing and exercising demons. But raising a dead, this was something entirely new. We didn't know that this was in his, his wheelhouse. We didn't know that this was in his, his box of things that he could do. They described, speaking of the eyewitness accounts, they described the reaction of the two crowds as a fear that led to worship, that lead, led to a declaration that spread through the whole area. Let me say it again, because <clears throat> this is so important. The reaction of the two crowds is a fear that leads to worship, that led to a declaration of faith that spread through the whole area. Now, fear speaks not of terror. It's not that they were afraid of Jesus, but of a holy awe as they see him speak and the dead rise. They consider just what they had witnessed, and it brings into them an awe of who they stand among. In awe and worship, they declare two things. First, they declare that Jesus is a great prophet. Now, you might recall from our study in Deuteronomy several years ago that Moses tells the people that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you are to listen. This miraculous resurrection of the dead also points back not only to that great prophet that they were looking for, that they were expecting, but it also points out to the two greatest prophets other than Moses in Israel's history. That is Elisha and Elijah. And what is interesting, both Elisha and Elijah raised young men for widows back from the dead. And not only that, but it was nearby that area, just over the hilltops that he did that. So again, two sons that belonged to widows who had died. Elijah and Elisha was able to raise them from the dead. Jesus does the same thing. So in then their mind, this is a this is a not a folklore, but this is something they believed. And all of a sudden, they, wait, there there is this is back. We know of Elisha. We know of Elijah. Could this be the great prophet that was prophesied back in through Moses that there would be a new prophet, one that we are to listen to? 
but also they declared that God visited his people. They recognized that they were in the presence of something much more awesome than just a rabbi, a local teacher. Now, of course, this close to Christmas, you and I are reminded of Yahweh's promise in Isaiah 7, 14, that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, Luke has already informed us that this was accomplished with the birth of Jesus. Remember that when we looked at Luke several year, or last year. Emmanuel means what? God with us. And here with their testimony, the crowd declares that Jesus, that in Jesus, they are seeing God, the power of God. Now, I want to take a moment before we continue with Luke's purpose of why did he write this? And including this account, and I want to consider the characters and the miracles themselves. So I want to go back and now I want to look at each of the characters of this narrative. The first is the crowd. As stated before, Luke points out the size of the two crowds. Now Luke has plenty of people to interview and he gets an accurate and orderly account of this wonderful miracle. It will be this two, these two crowds that respond in worship and declare in the news around the countryside. Both of these declarations find their source in the Old Testament, that he's a great prophet and that God is with us, and in the promises of the Old Testament. And the great considerable crowd here serves as witnesses, interpreters of what they just witnessed, and then reporters of this amazing supernatural event. We have here their account of what is happening. So the crowd has a part to play in this, hence why he tells us it is a great crowd. It is a considerable crowd. This is not just the eyewitness accounts of a few people that like Jesus and want to build him up. This is not a marketing campaign. Secondly, I want to look at the widow herself. As a widow, as we've seen, she's already lost both her husband and her son. She is left destitute and alone in a world and in a time that is very hostile to women, especially those with no means of support. The burden that she was carrying, now listen to this. When Jesus looks on her and has compassion, you and I are thinking, well, she's just weeping for her dead son. But what Jesus saw in her heart, what he had compassion on, was a burden that she was carrying was much heavier than the weight of her son on that funeral plank. It was her whole life. How will she exist? How will she get along? Where might she live? Who will provide for her? You and I must remember that in those days, women did not own property and businesses, things of that nature. There was no social security benefits. There was no spousal benefits. There was no welfare stimulus checks. There was no organizations set up to help and provide for her needs. Though we have support systems for widows today, we understand that even today, widows have a difficult time. Just this past week, I was given a prayer request for one such widow that lived in the state of Maine. And it says, pray for this lady. She is battling personal and financial hardship. As I was praying for this week and then I was studying this, I thought, how odd that God would give me that prayer request this week when I'm studying a widow who is struggling with hardships and economic difficulties. This woman was in desperate need of comfort, of help and support. Thirdly is the son. Now, nothing is known of this young man. Not much is given to us to him. We're not given his name, his age, his occupation, or even the cause of his death. Only that he had recently died. 
that he was dead was evident and that they were carrying him out to be buried. They had to make sure that he was dead. And I could guarantee you, his mom wanted to make sure that he was dead before she was about to bury him. It seems that he left no wife, no children. They're not mentioned. There's no accomplishment that would set him apart from any other man that had passed away in the village. There's no reason why he is, a, uh, of all the people that had died, why did God choose him to raise from the dead? We do not know. And yet without his knowledge, without his acceptance, without him laying a word or request or input, he is raised from the dead in spectacular fashion. Could you imagine? I don't know what, his life, what was happening from that moment he died until Christ came and, and raised him from the dead. Uh, but it would be interesting to know. It's not given to us. We do not know. But yet all of a sudden, he is raised from the dead without showing any faith, without asking Jesus. Jesus just says, you're raised, you're raised up, rise up, get up. Fourthly, I want to look at Jesus himself. He's traveling across the Galilee. He's teaching those who are following him. Remember, there's great crowds that are following him. So he takes a moment and he teaches. He gives a sermon here and there. He's healing those that would flock to him, asking for healing and ministry. And he's discipling all the while. He's discipling the 12 men that he has chosen to be his, his apostles. He's a busy man. He's, he has a lot on his plate. That he is surrounded by a great crowd is not surprising as we read through the Gospels. It seems that Jesus can never avoid the crowd and those that are seeking his services. Yet, here he is intervening even when he's not asked to. He goes out of his way, so to speak, and has compassion on a woman. His heart is so big and his word is so powerful and his authority extends even over death. Now, fifthly, I want to talk about one character in this narrative. This character is silent, but deadly. Name is not used. They're not pointed out. But that character that you and I, as we read through that we did not see, that character is sin and death. It raises its ugly head as the curse of sin and death claims another victim. This curse, is a, this curse is a direct result of our rebellion against our first parents, against the Creator. From that day forth, sin has destroyed the lives of every living person. I'm sure that many of you can give testimony to how that has happened in your life. From the day of their birth to the day of their death, sin's power to kill, destroy, has manifested itself as, if we, as we continue to rebel against God's moral law and our nature and our actions and our attitudes. No one can escape this character's clutches. None of us are immune to sin and death's destruction. We see and feel its cruel effects in our personal, in our social, political, cultural, and economic relationships. Sin has its roots in every facet of our lives. And though it is not named here, we are seeing the result of it through the widow and the man who has died. Now, now I want to take a moment and look at the event itself. It's supernatural, right? As pointed out already, Jesus was not asked nor invited to the funeral procession. It seems like just a coincidence that these two great considerable clouds or crowds, excuse me, would run into each other on that one road. One were traveling in, one traveling out. But you and I know better, don't we? This was a divine appointment that was ordained before the foundation of the world. Jesus did not travel 
out of the way to name for the scenery, but for a special purpose. Now you and I must do the work of trying to understand and interpret this passage of Scripture. What is Luke trying to accomplish in passing down this narrative? What is God trying to teach us about this widow and the dead man and Jesus rising, raising him from the dead? Why is this portion of Scripture so important to us today that you and I need to take 30, 40 minutes and discuss it? How is it profitable for us? Remember I said it was for God's glory, her good, and for our profit? How is this scripture profitable for us? How does it instruct us? How does it reprove us or correct us or train us in righteousness? Well, as we have indicated many times since we've started Luke's gospel, Luke is writing an orderly account of the life and ministry of Jesus in order to give his Gentile readers confidence in what they've heard and received from the apostles and other missionaries. Luke's original readers were not eyewitnesses to the ministry of Christ. They would have received it from someone else, just as you and I have. Nor did they have access to those that were. So Luke does the work of a historian in compiling all the various living eyewitnesses in order to preserve their recollections and their experiences. And Luke's main theme throughout his book has been to demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of the Most High God. He is God himself, the second person of the Trinity. He's been sent to rescue his people from their sin. And our passage today is preserved in the greatest book ever written and is an eternal testimony of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so through this funeral interruption, Luke establishes here the divinity of Jesus through his omniscience, his providence, his omnipotence, his sovereignty, his wisdom, his goodness, his grace, and compassion. So I want to just share very quickly through those. What we see is Jesus is divine. He is God. And we see this through his omniscience and providence. Now, omniscience means his, his knowledge. He is all-knowing. He knows all things. And we see his omniscience and providence, the way in which he supplies all things, in his decision to travel to that small village of Nain. The young man's early death is not a coincidence, nor is the meeting of the two crowds, but a divinely ordained moment of time. We've talked about that. Jesus knew what lay ahead of him that day as he traveled to that with his small or with his large crowd of followers. He knew intimately the widow and the son. He had formed them in the womb. He determined the time of their deaths and their births. Yahweh declares in Isaiah, you'll see it here on the screen, where God says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel will stand forever or shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes I have spoken I will bring it to pass I have purposed it I will do it this is God Jesus is God his omniscience and providence his traveling to that city shows us his divinity we also see Jesus' omnipotence his power and his sovereignty his rulership his his authority as he, without any hesitation, stops the funeral procession and intervenes in the life of the widow and the son. Like a king, when he says stop, they stop. 
though we, do not, we did not point out in our observation, Jesus here shows no reluctance in touching the funeral briar as he fears no contamination, no ceremonial uncleanness from touching that which was ceremonially unclean. And without a long preamble, without a long prayer, he calls the dead to life. He has authority over life and death. Neither ceremonial uncleanness or death is an obstacle for the Lord of all creation. He is the giver of life. In Psalms chapter 2, verse 6, Yahweh declares that the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, the grave, and he raises up. It is God who took the life of this young man. It is, uh, it is, it is God who raises him up once again. His power and authority is on full display in this short narrative. But we also see Jesus' wisdom and goodness, the wisdom and goodness of God in his interaction with the widow. His command to not weep or mourn the death of her son, though strange to us at first, is exactly what she needed to hear. Jesus always knows what to say at the right time. Jesus knows our hearts, our aspiration. He knows our dreams, our pain, and our suffering. He knows exactly how to minister to us. And though she has not asked for Jesus' help, even though she may not know who Jesus was and what he was capable of, he shows his goodness towards her by intervening at the right time of her life. Lastly, we see Jesus' grace and compassion. You see, Jesus sees more than just a widow and her pain. He feels it. He emphasizes with her. He understands completely how alone she is and afraid she is. He knew that her life was only going to get more difficult from this point forward. And he wastes no time in making the first move by meeting her immediate emotional, mental, and physical needs. Many times scripture recounts that Jesus had compassions on the crowds and those in distress. But the question you and I might ask is, why this woman in this small village at this time? Well, scripture gives us two reasons. In Romans 9.15, the Apostle Paul quotes Yahweh from the Testament when he writes, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It was this woman, something about her, that drove him to compassion. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, we read that Jesus, that we read that Jesus says that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on the crowds. Because they harassed and they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He, seen, he saw a woman that needed to be led. A woman that had no resources. Jesus shows compassion to a woman who lives in a world where death reigns supreme. As she has lost her two men that she loved the most. Jesus shows compassion to a woman in a world in which sin reigns supreme as an economic system and a world system and a cultural system that would destitute the vulnerable. Much different than many of the world today. In this, in this encounter, Jesus exhibits both the incommunicable and the communicable traits of the Trinity. We've been speaking about this in our adult core class. Those traits in which those attributes, those characteristics of God that he, that he keeps to himself, like his omnipotence, his all-knowing, his, his, his omnipresence, but also those that he shares with us, his goodness, his mercy, his grace, 
his kindness. What we see here is a snapshot of Jesus, that he is divinity, that he is divine. And this snapshot in the day and life of Jesus and this widow, widow shows us clearly that Jesus is God. In this way, Jesus makes the invisible God visible. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. John MacArthur comments here on the monitor, you may read this quote with me, that the greatest and clearest vision of God that man has ever or will ever see is Jesus. Jesus Christ has made God known. He is, in fact, God in human flesh. And as Luke unfolds the history of Jesus, as you and I are reading here this morning, he continually demonstrates to us that there is no other explanation for Jesus Christ than he is God. There is no other possible explanation for a man who can raise the dead back to life. Jesus is God. And that leads the crowds to express fear and leads them to worship and then the declaration of who Jesus is that spreads throughout the world. This recount, this encounter is recorded for not only Luke's original audience 2,000 years ago, but also for us today. That you and I may also fear be in awe of who God is. That you and I may worship Him, not only in song, but in prayer, in scripture reading, in listening, and obeying His word. But also declare that the world, that He is that great, that He is that great prophet. That, that He is, God has visited us. That Jesus is Lord. And that leads us now to the application. What do you and I do about this passage? One other observation that we skipped over in our reading is that Luke identifies Jesus as Lord. Instead of using his name Jesus, usually he says, and Jesus, or he uses the pronoun. But look back at, at Luke chapter 7, look at verse 13. And when the Lord saw her. Now when Luke changes his writing and identification of Jesus there, that, that's, there's telling us something here. Why is Luke doing it? Why didn't he just insert Jesus as he has before? Why doesn't he just insert the pronoun for Jesus, which he has been doing? But what we recognize here, Jesus is about to set, or Luke, excuse me, is about to set something up as we continue through Luke 7. Jesus is Lord. Luke is making a confession here. Why does he do it? It's a confession. Luke is telling his audience that Jesus is no normal rabbi or teacher or exorcist that's traveling around the land. No, this is God. And the two crowds that day are going to witness something that only God can do. One pastor I love to follow, I cannot say his name, and I promised him that I wouldn't do it so he could say I could call him the, the great Asian pastor. Uh, I could say his first name is Iki, but I'm not even sure if that pronunciation is correct. I encourage you, by the way, if you're on Twitter, a Twitter, if you're on Twitter, look him up. He, he is one to, he's worth following. He says some encouraging things. He's a down-to-earth pastor. He says, when we call Jesus Lord, it's a confession, not just a label. Calling him Lord recognizes his sovereign position over all creation. The same word, Lord, is used for master, but it's also used to translate Yahweh from the Old Testament. 
Jesus possesses the highest authority. This is demonstrated by his power over the greatest enemy that you and I will face, and that is death, the curse of sin and death. Now, the first application is that you and I are declared with all of our heart, our soul, our mind and strength, that Jesus is Lord. You and I are to declare that with our lives, with all that was in us. Scripture both promises and warns in Romans 10, 9, that if, we confess our, uh, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if we believe in our heart that God is raised from the dead, you will be saved. That confession will bring you into the house of the Lord. It will make you one of his children. But he also warns in Philippians 2.10 that at the, the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the God and Father. That is both a promise and a warning. It's a warning to those who rebel against God that one day you will put your knee down and say that he is sovereign. Satan and his demons will bow their knees. The world powers will bow their knees and say, yes, Jesus is Lord. I would implore you today, would you confess that Jesus is Lord now? Will you bow the knee in your heart to him today? Surrender your life to him? Do not wait another moment. To wait is to put your life in jeopardy of the torment of hell forever. For hell is real. And the wrath of God abides on those that are there. I would encourage you, say and claim that Jesus is Lord. The second and last application is that God's mercy that's demonstrated here, His compassion, His goodness, it shows his goodness towards those that are in misery and distress. Jesus knows the difficulties of life. He knows the pain and suffering that you and I experience, uh, that, 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 that you are experiencing, excuse me. Scripture calls all those that are redeemed by the Lord. He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find and receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. We need to come to him, recognizing that he is a good God, filled with compassion for his children. You'll see then in 2 Corinthians on the screen, on the monitor, in chapter 1, verse 3 through 4. Beloved, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which he ourselves are comforted by God. It doesn't say that he heals all your diseases there, that he'll take all suffering away, but he says, no, that during those afflictions, during those suffering, during that pain, I will give you comfort. The application is, are you asking for that? The widow and the dead man didn't ask, but God intervened. But also, as we need to see that God intervened in his grace. You and I didn't ask for God's grace. He gave it to us. We didn't ask for faith. He, gave, he granted that to us as a gift as well as repentance. Go to him for mercy. For he is a God of mercy and comfort. Pray for more faith to trust him more. And for more grace for when you are in doubt and struggling. I'm reminded of a wonderful old hymn that's written. That was written in 1893 by Alicia Hoffman called I Must Tell Jesus. I'm going to put it here on the monitor for you. It's a great old song. I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear all these burdens alone. 
In my distress, he kindly will help me. He ever loves and cares for his own. I must tell Jesus all of my troubles. He is a kind, compassionate friend. If I but ask him, he will deliver, make all of my troubles quickly and end. Tempted and tried, I need a great savior, she writes. One who can help my burdens to bear. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus. He all my cares and sorrows will share. What must I do when worldliness calls me? What must I do when tempted to sin? I must tell Jesus. And he will help me over the world, the victory to win. The refrain, the chorus is, I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus. I cannot bear my burdens alone. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus. Jesus can help me, Jesus alone. This morning, would you tell Jesus? For he is a great friend. Let us proclaim with confidence that Jesus is Lord who has the authority to raise the dead and who is compassionate toward his, his, God's children. This is the message that's worth declaring to a broken, help, helpless, hopeless, hostile world. I'm going to ask with every head bowed and every eye closed, the worship team make their way up. I just want you to pause to consider to pray and then respond. Do you see that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? Do you recognize that he is Lord? Are you undergoing some pain, some misery that has broken your heart? Are you sadly walking in a funeral procession of life? If so, would you turn towards him? Tell Jesus, for Jesus alone can save. Father, we just come to our pastor's prayer this morning. And I just want to pray, thank you for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. The Father who has called us, chosen us. The Holy Spirit who's regenerated us and calls us to himself. And Jesus who made the way of salvation. Lord, may we see the Trinity's work, not only in creation, but also in our salvation. And just in the normal, mundane areas of our life. We thank you so much for your goodness to your children. We thank you for your word that you gave us. We thank you for your love. Father, we thank you for, for sending Jesus to intervene on our behalf when we were not asking for help, when we're not, we were not desiring of help, yet when we were rebellious towards you, you intervened. You saved us by your grace. And I pray that you continue to do so. Father, we pray for our nation. Our nation is divided. Each and every time of year, it seems like we could say this. Our nation is more divided, and it seems to be true. For many of us, we're not quite sure what the future holds for us under this administration, especially for those with religious liberties, for the church. But Lord, we know that you are sovereign, that you're in control. And Father, that the, only those that, that you have chosen will be in authority. And we get what we deserve. So Father, you've called us to submit to our authorities. You've called us to pray for them. And so we do so. We pray for their salvation. We pray for wise leaders and counselors to be near the seats of power, whether it's the president, whether it's in Congress, the Senate, the House, whether it's in the state, whether it's in a region, a board of supervisors. Father, we just pray that you would be with them, Lord, that you would direct good men and women into, into those, those, those seats of power and in, in words of counsel. 
Father, we pray that our nation would hear the word of God, that the churches would not be silent. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.